0: Welcome to the February 2017 podcast. It's great to be back. Now, last month I did something that I haven't done for about 30 odd years, and that was I attended a magic convention while not actually working at it. It was a bit of a culture shock, to be honest. I I didn't know what to do with myself. I'm not used to just sitting and watching other people doing stuff without selling product or lecturing or something like that. But it was actually really, really nice. And the convention I went to was Andy Gladwin and Joshua Jay's The Session, which took place at the beginning of January in a hotel uh, near Terminal 5 at London Heathrow Airport. And uh, actually, I'd been to a very early um, version of The Session. I think it was something like the second one when it was still in Gloucester and um, I'd been a dealer at that particular one so I hadn't actually seen much of the convention. But it had always had, certainly in my mind and I think in the mind of many people, a reputation early on of being just basically a collection of card geeks getting together and uh, showing each other card complex card moves, possibly an unfair sort of analysis of what the thing was about but nevertheless that was I think a little bit the reputation that it had but uh, it's really broadened out now and into something much more major when you think that for a close-up convention it attracted between four and five hundred people it shows you that close-up is as popular as ever amongst magicians for a start but also that it is possible to, if it's staged correctly, to run a convention for that number of people that features close up completely and predominantly, and and make a success of it. And I really take my hat off to Andy Glad- Gladwin and Joshua J for succeeding so well. Uh, I say I wasn't working at the convention. I, I mean, I kind of wasn't. I did. Take along some magic, mag- uh, magic scene magazines to, in order to uh, for the the conventioners to have them. <clears throat> and I've also obviously written a report of the of the session up for the current issue for the um, well, well, actually there'll be the March issue, the next come up up and coming issue of Magic Scene. But I really, really enjoyed the convention, and uh, what I liked about it, apart from the fact I thought the lineup was very strong. Um, I didn't go to the the mentalist day, which was on the Friday. It was a complete day of mentalism, not really my thing. So I didn't go to that, but I did go to the other two days. And I thought the the variety of magic and the way that the, the day is kind of organized was really refreshing. I think a lot of conventions have become very formulaic. You have a lecture for an hour, then you have a small gap, and then you have another lecture for an hour, and you have a small gap, and then maybe you have a show, and so on and so forth. It's, it, it's very rigid, whereas the way they do the session, it's, it's broken up into uh, events or sessions during the day, which are different lengths, which I liked, um, but also within those actual sessions. You might have somebody who does a lecture for an hour and a half. But on another occasion, you might have a one hour session and that's broken up and shared by, say, three different people doing like 20 minutes each. Uh, And that variety, I think, keeps the whole thing fresh. It keeps the pace of the day going at a good pace so that people don't get too perhaps bored with one individual. If an individual is not really your cup of tea, then um, he may only be on for 20 minutes. of course it can work the other way somebody you really like is only on for 20 minutes but nevertheless I I personally really really liked this this sort of format the dealers were only open for one of the the two weekend days so that was on the Sunday again as a dealer if I'd been a dealer I would be really pleased with that um, because it means that it concentrates the minds of the people who are there to look at the dealers so rather than just idly sort of looking at the same thing three or four times over a two-day period they have to make up their mind they only have a day they only have the gaps if they want to attend the, the lectures and, and the various other things going on they only have that one day to make a decision and uh, and that usually means that people get on and make the purchases that they would like to make they also only invited a small number of dealers Now, obviously, Vanishing Inc. had a big stand in the main hall. But um, in the main dealer room, there was only around about six or seven other dealers, which for four to five hundred people is an excellent ratio from the dealer's perspective. And to be honest, all the dealers were selling different stuff. um, And so from the, the conventioneers point of view, there was enough variety and you didn't need 30 dealers. You really didn't need them. All that would have done is is in some ways for the dealer's point of view, spread the money too thinly and from the conventioneer's point of view, this just kind of too much to look at in the available time. So I think to, to limit it just to a few dealers like that is is great from everybody's perspective. The um, the final gala show, which is, in a way, I think for some people is the way that they perhaps judge how the success of the event in a way. If, if the last gala show as the final thing that happens at the convention is a big success, then you go away on a high, and it makes you want to come back next time and uh, I thought the final gala show was really excellent they had some top, top acts and it was lovely to see people I haven't seen Guy Hollingworth perform for ages and he was showing I think it was a a, a new sort of parlour or stagey type of performance piece uh, an act which was excellent Um, typical Guy, very well thought out a wonderful skill uh, and inventiveness. So uh, I was lovely to see him. But everybody uh, on that particular show really did pull out all the stops. And it was also great to have Dynamo there. Um, he did a, a spot uh, one trick in the Final gala show. He also did a really interesting question and answer session, uh, which was hosted by Luke Jermay. And um, I thought it was great because we, we've seen a lot of... Um, of dynamo of course in recent times on television and he has become an international superstar now and very very successful with all his live shows doing so well with the lay public Um, but he he doesn't appear to have changed in himself at all he's he's very modest um, and uh, confident but modest and he came across i thought in the question and answer session really really well and uh, as being very likable and apparently he's been—he goes to many of the uh, the conventions over the years. He's been to the session on many occasions, so it's great that he's able to find the time and has indeed the enthusiasm to come and support something like that. So all in all, I thought it was a terrific event and uh, really, really good advert for close-up magic. And as somebody who goes to 4Fs most years in the United States, where a lot of the, um, the, the the charisma of the convention is created by the informal sessioning that goes on around the main events at, at the convention, well, the, the session in London had that too. Certainly this year it did. There was a lot of um, uh, impromptu magic going on. Little groups were forming and, and some top people were, were, were playing their stuff and showing their skills. And it created a lovely, I thought, a lovely atmosphere around the whole place. With sort of a laughter and applause coming from various groups. And you thought, oh, what's going on over there? And you wanted to go over and have a look and see what, what performer was strutting his stuff. So it's absolutely fantastic. And if, you've, if you love close-up and you've not been to the session, I would certainly highly recommend that you get to a future one. Being a, a football fanatic, I love soccer. Um, I, um, I like to listen to Talk Sport Radio. And um, I was coming home from, I can't remember, I've well, been now, been out in the car somewhere. I was coming home and I put Talk Sport on. And um, it was an afternoon show and they were interviewing somebody. And I thought, I kind of recognize that voice, but I, I can't think who this is. And as I listened to the conversation, and it's funny, when you don't know who it is, you start to listen to the content of the conversation. He was talking about this and that and the other. And then I suddenly realized who it was. It was Jamie Raven and um i i don't know how long the interview had been but i heard the last 6 or 7 minutes of it and he finished the uh, the chat with the two uh, interviewers by by doing a trick and um what was interesting he did a card trick on the radio which is i think magic on the radio is is always a, a quite a tricky thing to try and do in a way that Yes, you can get reaction from the, the people in the studio to something that you're doing, and you can describe you know, what, what the effect is as you go along. And, of course, you have to, because, naturally enough, the listeners can't see. But um, what I liked about what Jamie did, and I thought this was really clever, was that um, he linked what he was doing in the card trick to his website. And in order for people to kind of take part in this trick... He gave a URL which encouraged people to go to that web page on his website in order to join in and, and to appreciate in full the denouement of the trick. Now, this one I thought was clever on two levels. It was clever on one level because it potentially it, it was engaging with the audience in a proactive way, not just the people in the studio, but also with the listener, which is a difficult thing to do. And if people were sufficiently engaged by what he was doing, oh, I can do that. So get the phone out or get their tablet out, and, and quickly go to his web page. So that was obviously the first thing. Of course, the second thing was he'd taken potentially hundreds, maybe thousands of people to his website—free publicity or what—and um, now suddenly they see all his other um, information and so on. So I thought, well done, Jamie. That's that's really good, and um, I took my hat off to him. I thought that was brilliant, and it came. He came across very, very well. He came across very nicely on the radio. Good trick that he did, and um, and it was nice to hear somebody being interviewed and doing a trick on the radio. It was clearly successful. The interviewers clearly liked him, uh, and they they did a very nice interview with him and this added bonus of potentially getting the listeners in sort of to interact with the trick and go to his website, I thought was very, was something worth remembering. Um, so if you ever get a chance to do magic on the radio, putting a thought into how you can in some way engage with the audience is clearly the way to go. One of the busiest times of year for most entertainers, of course, is over the Christmas period. and um, And it's also often sort of December, January time, is the height of when there are various bugs going round. Flu, heavy colds, various other nasties. And uh, as performers, of course, one of the, the real uh, worst things that can happen to you is to feel ill when you need to go out and perform. And sometimes I think there's a, there's an element of feeling, well, how ill do I have to be before I'm going to cancel or try to pass the show on to somebody else to do it for me. Now, I'm not talking about major illness, you know, something really, really bad. But I'm talking about coughs, colds, losing your voice, you know, th- that kind of thing, which um, can be not enough, perhaps, to put you in bed so that you can't get up but or in hospital, but bad enough that it affects in a very tangible way your ability to perform i mean this year i, I, d- I never have a, a flu jab i never have had a flu jab um i'm not totally convinced by them but i, I suppose i probably should uh, and this year i had a sort of a f- mm, some people say it's man flu uh it was kind of a flu-y thing which came and went a couple of times and um it coincided with over the end of the year so i had two or three shows in the last week of of 2000 uh, last um yes last week of 2016 uh, including a in new year's eve and especially for the new year's eve one i really didn't feel at all well I, I, I could feel this this cold coming through i didn't have a sore throat but i was a bit blocked up and uh and my head wasn't right uh and i thought well i've got to go and do this show so i went and i did it and um And I got through it and it was fine, but I didn't feel great at all. So it's a real effort. And I know when you get out to a show, often if you feel pretty rubbish before you go, actually, once you get into the show, it tends to kind of retreat because you're so absorbed and the adrenaline starts pumping through you. uh, And I find very useful for getting rid of temporary certainly temporarily anyway, any feelings of not being very well. But it's things to do with your voice and your throat uh, or a runny nose. You know, how do you do close up when you have a runny nose? You can't keep blowing your nose in front of the audience. It just is horrendous. So it is really quite tricky. So I I sort of thought it was making me think about this. uh, At what point do you say, I actually don't think I should go out and do this show? I was thinking about over the sort of 35 years or so that I've been a pro, I can only think of a couple of occasions where I have pretty much at the last minute not been able to do a show. I just literally couldn't. Um, but but the, And I'm normally fairly healthy, so I've had very few occasions when I've even, even had a cold. But on the occasions that I have, I usually think to myself, well, if I've got my voice, as if I haven't lost my voice with laryngitis or something like that, then I can kind of stay, probably stage manage the rest. Uh, tickly throat. Very difficult when you're pattering all the time, isn't it? Not to keep coughing. Uh, things like that. So drug yourself up to the eyeballs. Take a load of paracetamol uh, uh, and various other things. Just get yourself through the show. And I think for most of us, that's probably what we do, isn't it? Um, I certainly wouldn't try to drop a show, apart from anything else. I don't want to lose the income. I wouldn't want to drop a show just because I didn't I didn't feel too great I felt a bit rough so where do you draw your line do you have a, a thing so well you know I just can't do this show do you do you try to pass shows off to other people would you just cancel at the last minute Or uh, would you try and get somebody else it's a difficult one because you don't want to let people down and, and I have had occasional phone calls Uh, over the years from people looking to book a magician because they've been let down at the last minute by somebody else and it's interesting that they say the words let down it could well be that the magician was really ill and just simply couldn't go or had an accident or something like that but what they say is when they contact you oh i've been let down by somebody else you're not available are you because that's unfortunately even though you might be quite seriously ill the booker feels let down so I suppose it really is something to be avoided if if we possibly can. About 14 months ago, I opened the Mark Leverage Magic Academy down here in Exeter. And um, I've run a number of mainly um, beginner events. Not only that, but one or two beginner events, uh, as well as events for more established magicians. And the most recent one I did last month for Total Beginners. And um, the people who came, it was very interesting because it reminded me of when people have literally, they have an interest in magic in the sense that they're they're really quite keen to try and learn and get involved, but they've literally, basically done nothing. And they turn up and you start to teach them things, basic handling things, say with cards or coins, and you realise the level that you're actually having to start at. For instance, if you say to a to a lay person, take a pack of cards out of the box and give them a shuffle. Well some of them can't even get the cards out of the box neatly. They they pull them out of the box and then they squirt them all over the table. Think, wow, we've actually got a the, 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 how's that for a start? You can't even get the box the cards out of the box. And then you get them to do an overhand shuffle and there was there was one person who, who didn't know how to overhand shuffle, which I thought everybody would know but they don't necessarily. And simple things like in, when you give them instructions, when they're not used to following instructions to do magic tricks or to do any sort of handling, you say, well, hold it with your hand palm up. And you can see them, you show them, but they, 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 they hold the hand round the wrong way. They hold out the wrong hand. Um, they hold it upside down. You, you tell them to do something from left to right, they do it from right to left. All sorts of really simple logistical things which we complete, take completely for granted that you just you just do it, you don't think about it. But at when you're at a basic level and a total beginner and you're not used to following these instructions and doing these types of things, you actually find even the most minor of what appears to us anyway, minor of... Um, for anything really whatever you have to do whether it's spreading cards whether it's passing something from one hand to the other almost everything becomes an issue and you can actually get a little bit bogged down if you if you try to teach beginners something that is if they literally have done nothing ever before haven't even played cards before don't know how to deal cards you know if you're really back at that level you have to spend quite a bit of time and have a lot of patience in getting them up to a speed where you can even start to teach them some stuff so those are challenges that beginners have that for us as more regular magicians we perhaps don't appreciate i think the other thing that's interesting to me is that when i do these i do a three-hour beginner session and i do a bit with some stuff with cards i do some stuff with coins and i do um some magic with rope and what i found very interesting is the the way that any given individual who's a beginner maybe find cards extremely difficult but absolutely loves the rope stuff or will love the cards and struggle with the coins i I find these three different using these three different objects it really reveals how we're not all naturally going to be at the same level or have the same aptitude for all of these things and i suppose it's why We all end up as magicians perhaps having a preference for one type of magic or another. Some people feel more confident, don't they? Standing on a stage using big props, personally that's not for me. I don't like big props, I like small props. Even if I'm working on a stage, I feel more comfortable getting people up to help me, but using small actual physical props than I do trying to do some huge illusion. And it's the same at the beginner level. Um, I, f- I found a huge difference. And, and the group I had the other day, there was there was one person who um, struggled hugely with the cards, but who seemed to get on really well with the rope. He had an aptitude for it, and he could do all, all the rope stuff really quickly. He, he got the hang of it really quite quickly. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, you don't always realise how polarised ability may be. So um, I really enjoy doing the beginner's workshops and and I love the enthusiasm that um, these people bring to it. You're opening up this this box of secrets and boxes, a box of ideas and handlings and knowledge which they have no prior knowledge of. And it's lovely to see them starting to get all excited. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, look what I can do. And they do something very simple, but it gives them a huge amount of pleasure and self-esteem. And, of course, it's very rewarding for someone like me to be uh, be able to teach it to them. Now, here's an interesting, well, I think it's interesting, interesting conundrum. If you um, turn up to work at a dinner, let's say it's a big dinner function, and there are, let's just say, for example, 20 tables, and it's a three-course meal, and the the way that the meal is being served by the, um, by the waiters and waitresses is very efficient. <clears throat> so in other words, they don't spend, there aren't big gaps that give you masses of time to work. And that when that meal ends, the band's going to start or the disco's going to start. So you've got a, a very tight, finite amount of time in which to get around the tables. And you look at it and you think, actually, this is going to be very, very difficult to get around everybody now at this point you have a kind of a decision to make don't you is it better to race around go to every table and do one very quick thing and get around the whole room and then if you have any time left go back to one or two tables and do a bit more because that way at least everybody has seen something very quick or is it actually that not the way to go because it's slightly unsatisfactory? Yes, everybody's seen the magician for a minute or two, but you haven't been able to do anything very meaningful. So, and when you go to the table, they may well expect you to do a bit more. If you do something that lasts literally a minute uh, or a minute and a half, that, okay, what's next? And then you say, well, thanks. And you just walk off and think, well, you didn't do much. That, that may be quite uh, unsatisfying for them. Or do you go to do your normal amount I say normal about what's a normal amount obviously it depends literally on how much time you have but let's say you go to not all the tables but as many tables as you can and you do five minutes at each table so that you at least get a couple of tricks done can interact a bit more with the people that you do see you just don't get all the way around all of the tables because at least by doing that the tables that you did get to will get a proper show and the ones that you didn't get to well you just didn't literally didn't have enough time they they should have booked two magicians for that that number of tables perhaps but it but when you're put in this situation it's actually quite hard i, I i'm not sure exactly what the 100% correct maybe there isn't a 100% correct answer i don't know even for me what the correct answer is there i don't like to rush up to a table do one quick thing and move straight on i prefer to to develop a little bit of a show Um, But if you are boxed in and you literally, you know, if the disco or the band and the lights go down and that crashes in and people then start to disperse off the tables anyway, you you really can't do any more. You can't extend your time and just stay longer, which you can at some events, you can stay a bit longer. Uh, But if you really can't, then I think what I tend to do, I, I would say, okay, well, if there's two or three tables I've missed, well, there you go you know, I have did my best, I got round as many as I possibly could, rather than doing a very tiny bit at each table. Because if you were to race round, let's say you race round, and in an hour you manage to do a very quick flashy trick at each table, then you you, you haven't finished, because now you've got perhaps another hour in which you can go back to some of the tables. So now you start to pick and choose tables to do more at. Then the tables who saw one trick, your flashy quick trick, But you didn't go back and do any more for them. Why didn't he come back to us? So isn't that as bad as you not going to them at all? Um, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think, as I say, I think my my personal um, way of doing this would be to do a little bit more for each table. And as I say, if I miss one or two tables out, then that's really unfortunate. I just simply couldn't get around them all. And I think that's the way I would go. But I'm not sure it's the right answer. And I also think when you have a trick that's very flashy and very quick, if you walk up to a table and, I don't know, you you produce a coin and then it vanishes or something, you do it very quickly, give them a little taster, um, then people will almost probably assume, because it was so quick, that you will come back to them. So maybe you are creating as much disappointment when you don't come back. Oh, you know, he'll come back and do some more in a minute. Um, And some of the tables you will, if you have the time. So uh, you're still going to create a certain amount of disappointment, almost uh, whatever you do. So have you ever thought about that? What do you do in those circumstances? If you do magic for money, if you're a commercial performer in any way, I think one of the most difficult things is to decide when it is time to put your fees up. I think we all have a, probably anyway, most of us, have a natural reluctance to stick the price up. Because we know intimately what our prices are and we feel kind of probably, to a certain extent, kind of guilty when suddenly we are charging more to people for what we've been charging less to others previously. Now, I don't know how you do your structure of fees. I, have, I don't have an absolute set fee, but I do have very clear guidelines for myself, certain types of show will generate in my mind for amount of time if it's close up the amount of time and the type of event will create a a consistent fee so although it may not be absolutely identical every time because I will tweak it depending on what I think is appropriate for the booking itself nevertheless I am very consistent and it's a very close ballpark figure that uh, that I use and so when you're used to doing that, and then you think, "Well, maybe it's time to put up my fees." How do you decide when the right, my right moment is? You see, the problem that we have is if you leave it for too long, then when you do decide to put your fees up, if you have, let's say, you haven't, you suddenly realise you're charging the same now as you did six years ago, for example. Well, even with a low rate of inflation, you're still really now undercharging. You you, you ought to put it up. So then you think, oh, gosh, six years. So how have prices gone up in six years? Um, If I want to to increase my fees, what should the increase be? Well, actually, it's got to be quite a bit. So now you're having to do a sudden big jump. Now, for those people who have no knowledge of you and they are um, inquiring with you for the very first time and they have no idea what you might charge... Actually, when you quote them a fee, the only person who is worried about it when you put the price up is probably you because they have no idea what you charged before. So they will take your fee at face value. So the, the only people who uh, are going to know a difference is if, let's say, somebody books you every year. At Christmas time, every year, they rebook, rebook, rebook. Those are the hardest ones to put the fees up for but you should because otherwise if just because they rebook you you give them the same rate you can go a very long time and f- now you feel that well if i've had the fee the same for five or six years I-, I feel embarrassed now about putting it up especially because actually i really should put it up by 50 pounds or something um whereas if is it not better to edge your fees up, especially for regular bookings? And this is what I do. If I have people who book me regular, I may leave it the same fee for two, maybe three years at the most. And then I'll make a modest increase. And then I'll wait another couple of years and I'll another modest increase. So they get used to it not being absolutely identical every time I go. But there's a small increase and people are very accepting of that. And I think when people do know you and when they've had you many times before and they like what you do, that's presumably why they're rebooking you, they they, they don't mind too much, a small increase. What they might mind is that one sudden big increase, which may then put them off. So when was the last time you put up your fees? Have you thought about that? Have you uh, have you thought about what you might need to put them up to to make it realistic? If you would like to make a little bit more money, uh, or you need to make a bit more money out of the magic that you do, then you need to put your fees up. And for most of the, for the most part, it won't actually make any difference to the number of shows that you do, because most people won't know that it is a fee increase. And provided that you quote it confidently as if this is my normal fee, then people will accept it as exactly that. Right, well, thank you for listening to the February podcast. It's been fantastic to have you along. I hope you've enjoyed the topics I've covered this time. And I will look forward to seeing you in March.